This is Interviews, a podcast from the National Academy of Sciences that provides first-person accounts of the lives and work of Academy members. In this series of one-on-one conversations, scientists talk about what inspired them to pursue the careers they chose and describe some of the most fascinating aspects of their research. The loss of tropical forests is a big part of the climate change puzzle, and we wouldn't know this if it weren't for Ruth DeFries. Her innovative use of satellite images, or remote sensing, to study how humans are changing their planet has revealed some of science's big surprises, from the rate and extent of rainforest loss in the Amazon to the role urban areas play in deforestation. It has also revolutionized how governments respond to land use change. Many now employ her techniques to monitor and protect their natural resources. DeFries, the recipient of a 2007 MacArthur Foundation Genius Grant, is currently the Denning Professor of Sustainable Development at Columbia University in New York City. She was elected to the National Academy of Sciences in 2006. My name is Ruth DeFries. I'm on the faculty at Columbia University in the Department of Ecology, Evolution, and Environmental Biology, and I was elected to the Academy in 2006. Where did you grow up? I grew up in the D.C. area, uh, mostly in Northern Virginia, Falls Church. My mother uh, was a teacher. My father was a chemical engineer. I grew up uh, in suburban D.C., but on a lake, and we would spend a lot of time swimming, boating, romping in the woods, a lot of interaction, probably more interaction um, with nature than most people get in a suburban upbringing. Uh, How did you first become interested in science? Uh, I was always interested in science and math, and I was better at that than other subjects. Uh, I would have long conversations with my father, who was, real is, a uh, sort of armchair scientist. He always loved science, although he was an engineer. He wasn't a scientist, but I, I always thought that if he had... Uh, he had the ability at that time to choose his career path. He probably would have been a scientist. And I remember long conversations around the dinner table talking about Scientific American articles and different science topics. And it just seemed what I would always do. In my adolescence, it, it was the time when the environmental movement was becoming strong in this country. There was Earth Day and recycling and all of those things that happened at that time and that really drew me into uh, to wanting to work in science in that, in that arena. At that time the environmental issues were very clear and easy to see. There was pollution, air pollution, the the icon of environmental issues was the the smokestack, the smoke coming out of the the factory. Uh, There was Silent Spring, which of course was before uh, that time, but that set the stage. There was water pollution. There was um, uh, toxicity in waters and rivers burning and these very obvious uh, environmental issues which were related to 
pollution, industrial pollution mostly. So it was very clear that, uh, that there was an issue here. You could see it, you could smell it, you could taste it. And it was, it was easy to see that that was an area that needed some attention that wasn't getting attention, which is what, what happened. Earth Day was part of the whole uh, feeling at that time of the power of youth, of being able to organize and get things done, feeling empowered, feeling like we could really make a difference, feeling idealistic. <laughs> I think the, the, the times, the Earth Day and the environmental movement of the times um, really shaped me, and I, and I think that's true for quite a few people of my generation. So you already had that in mind when you went off to college? Um, I don't know as much as anyone going off to college has in mind what they really want to be, but uh, I was very much in the science-math side, uh, side of things. I went to Washington University in St. Louis. Uh, at Washington University, I ended up majoring in Earth Sciences, which is now Earth and Planetary Sciences uh, at Washington University. I think the reason that I was attracted to that area was to get that perspective that humans are such a tiny, insignificant portion of all of, all of time. And I think I was drawn to that, uh, that area of, of our species and the overall scheme of things uh, on geologic timescales. What do you think appealed to you about that idea? Uh, I think the appeal was thinking about the Earth as a whole, a whole system, which is now the way we think about uh, the, the way we study the Earth as a, as a system and thinking about where people fit into that. I was always really drawn to thinking about how people interact with their environment and looking out of plane windows and seeing how people live and how people use their, uh, use their environment and having that sort of geologic time scale ability to look at things um, puts it all in perspective. I was also really drawn to this whole area of how people interact with their environment and also the um, the developing world, which at that time, what did we call? We called the third world, I guess, is what we, we said at that time. Uh, and how people live and what they get from their environment and how they affect their environment and what we now call coupled human natural systems. But of course, that didn't exist at the time, that, that kind of thinking. So after I finished, uh, and I'm also a real wanderlust, real wanderlust, after I finished my undergraduate, at Washington University, I spent a year just traveling around Europe and train, going on trains and just going here and there and trying to satisfy some of that wanderlust, although you can never be satisfied when you're a true wanderlust. Uh, from, from there, I went to graduate school. I'm not sure exactly what prompted me to go to graduate school. It just seemed like the thing to do. <laughs> um, we were less career directed at that time. <laughs> Uh, and I was absolutely just total good fortune to uh, fall into the, uh, the program at Johns Hopkins University, the department, DOGGY, the Department of Geography and Environmental Engineering, which now that I look back, I see how unique that was at that time. It was an interdisciplinary department in the engineering school, but very, very holistic thinking <laughs> 
about environmental issues, about the Earth system. So you had everything from the Marxist geographer David Harvey to operations research engineering. It was such an interdisciplinary, vibrant place. Red Wolman, who um, passed away uh, recently, I just finished writing his memoir, uh, had so much to do with that. He was the original thinker about the Earth system and what we now call coupled human natural systems. He didn't call it that, but uh, now that I look back, I see how visionary he, uh, he really was. I took it for granted at the time uh, to get that kind of holistic view about humans and their environment. That is more common now in different institutions, but at that time it was not uh, very common. So uh, I consider myself very fortunate to have landed in that, in that program. And, and after finding yourself there, what, uh, what did you do there? What did you work on? Well, I was very interested in the development issues, the developing country issues. I ended up, for I guess practical reasons, doing my dissertation on, on the land use history in the Chesapeake Bay watershed using pollen core, uh, sediment cores and, and counting pollen grains to look at how the uh, European colonization affected um, sedimentation patterns through changing land use in the Chesapeake watershed. So I've never counted a pollen grain since, but it did allow me to keep that sort of little bit of a paleo perspective, which I had brought from my uh, undergraduate um, training, and tie that with the land use, the, the human connection with the, with the geomorphology, really. After that, I, I had met my future husband <laughs> there at Hopkins, and uh, he is from uh, India. So uh, after I finished graduate school, we were married, and then, uh, then we lived in India for a few years uh, outside of Bombay, now called Mumbai. <laughs> and that was another really wonderful experience for me to uh, live in a, live, not just visit a, uh, what was then very much a third world, although as we all know, it's changed so, so much in the intervening decades. Uh, uh, to really live and see how people live and uh, you know, really see what poverty is about. And that, uh, I guess this might sound a little trite, but having a lot of poverty around, um, uh, you really catch on pretty quickly that these ways that we often frame environment versus development is really not black and white at all, that, uh, that having people having a better life and improving their living standards is really, really important. And, uh, and some what we might call trade-offs, environmental trade-offs might actually be what society wants to do to improve the well-being of people. If you just stay from a very environmental focus, uh, you know, that I might have had as a teenager, uh, I wouldn't have been able to appreciate the aspect that people's needs and aspirations are um, as, if not more, important than environmental aspects sometimes. Although it is not a clear one or the other, which is what sustainability is all about. How do we think about um, improving the lives of people with, without damaging the environment and uh, having people be able to obtain what, what we need to be able to maintain life. 
So, um, at some point you came back. Yes, we came back after a couple of years. At that time, at that time, India was a very, very closed place economically. It was very closed, no imports, no, uh, you know, international telephone calls were difficult, certainly no internet. It was just a very, very closed, closed economy and a, a much more closed society than it is, uh, than it is now. So that got frustrating and also being at the beginning of our careers, um, it was difficult to see how, how we could really break out of that. We were teaching at the Indian Institute of Technology outside of Mumbai, which is a wonderful uh, institution and remains a wonderful institution. And we still have wonderful friends from that uh, from that time, uh, but it was very closed and very um, isolating. We came back to Washington D.C., where my family is. I uh, I lucked into a staff position at the National Research Council, working with the Environmental Studies Board, which does not exist in that incarnation uh, today. And I ended up working with the Committee on Global Change. By the time that I had gone through various different roles at the National Research Council, which was a, uh, another really fantastic experience to work with academy members and committee members who were developing Earth System Science, basically. That was in the, in the very early days of, uh, of Earth System Science and how the atmosphere interacts with oceans and interacts with the biosphere. People come into that also at that time the human part was not so much in the discussion of our system science. It has come in, um, come in now. But it was just a fantastic, exciting time to be part of that whole discussion. We were advising the federal agencies on the science priorities for global change research and our system science research and uh, part of the International Geosphere Biosphere Program, the international program which uh, still exists. And it was the very early stages, so that was very exciting. And uh, what about your research? Okay, so the national working at the National Research Council was wonderful from the perspective of uh, getting to work with these fantastic people on the committees. It was not so wonderful in the sense of being able to develop your own research and really being able to do research. So I got antsy to be able to. Uh, uh, do some of my own research. And here we were writing about all of this interesting research that needed to be done, how there was no one to do it, how do we train people to do this sort of interdisciplinary kind of research. So I started thinking, well, yeah, <laughs> that's what I want to do. I want to do the research. I don't want to write about the need to do the research. So again, another stroke of luck. I was able to move into a, a research position at the University of Maryland at College Park. And there, the, the, which has a very strong remote sensing focus. So there, the, the, the research that I was always interested in was relating to um, land use and how people use land use as a way that they interact with their environment and what the implications are. Uh, uh, so I, I was working on a project, which again was just very lucky to be able to get in on that project, where, uh, where the climate models at the time didn't have, they didn't have the land surface in it. The, the land surface was like this big green slab. There was no way to 
uh, to make the distinction between where are their forests, where are their grasslands, where are their different types of um, land covers, which make a difference for the climate in terms of the um, albedo and various other aspects. And now that is fully incorporated in climate models. At that time, it wasn't. So the issue was, my job was to try to improve the input data sets to, uh, to these coupled models. So how do we do that? How do we construct a global data set of land cover and remote sensing, being able to look at that from space is uh, clearly the way we have to do that because you can't really see what's on the everywhere on the world unless you, you see it from the top, from, from remote sensing. So, uh, so the tools were starting to be developed at that time to be able to work on these global land cover satellite-derived data sets. So I was very lucky to be able to work with a with a, uh, a, a wonderful research group who was working on developing these coupled models. So my niche in that group was to provide the global land cover data. And why is it important to do that? It's important to be able to capture those processes in, in climate models because the land surface has lots of interactions. So there's um, greenhouse gas, Fluxes, for example, the, the land cover um, determines the type of uh, the, the carbon emissions and other greenhouse gas emissions, determines the amount of um, incoming radiation, which goes back to the, uh, the atmosphere, the albedo. All of these interactions determines the amount of evapotranspiration, the amount of uh, water <laughs> that's interacting between the vegetation and the atmosphere. So there are all these kinds of interactions between the atmosphere and the and the land surface that to improve modeling, those models need to capture those kinds of interactions. So, so the original way that I got into the, uh, the, the land cover world was because of the interactions with, in climate models, the interaction between the land surface and the atmosphere. But, um, but there's a lot more, a lot more reasons why the land cover is important. So the, the climate one is one, but there's also uh, habitat for biodiversity. Uh, there's the way people use the landscape for agriculture, for um, urbanization. So, so my later work, I was able to get into um, understanding those processes, not just mapping them, but to be able to see how the land cover is changing over time and understanding what the processes, economic and um, biophysical processes that explain those changes in the land surface. So that quickly brings you to not staying at the global scale, which is where I started, but being able to work more regionally. And now the satellite data allows us to do that in ways that we couldn't really do before uh, and understand at that sort of regional scale, finer scale than the global scale, about these, uh, these processes that lead to uh, land cover change, which is great for me because that then, being the wanderlust, uh, enables field work, which is just, uh, I live for field work. Uh, I've done some work in the southern Amazon, which is well known for the deforestation, very high rates of deforestation. So when we started this work in the early 2000s, I think 2003, uh, that was the peak of deforestation. 
very, very rapid and very, very visible in the field. So we were working with the Brazilian Space Agency to be able to incorporate different ways of using satellite data in their uh, monitoring of deforestation. And being in the field was just, again, eye-opening, as it always is to go into the field to see the first the rapid rate and, uh, and uh, the, the changes that were going on. Now, uh, the whole issue of deforestation and the carbon emissions from deforestation uh, is a very big policy issue. Uh, the, the early work to be able to use satellite data to be able to monitor deforestation is, is a, a really fundamental piece in terms of advancing policies to reduce deforestation. One of many, uh, uh, many pieces, but it is an important piece, so it was exciting to be able to work in that, on that area. At that time, they have a very, very wonderful system for monitoring deforestation, very well developed that they've been working on for years. But at that time, um, they were using data and methods which, uh, which took a long time to do the processing. So by the time you know what the deforestation is, it's a couple of years later. So the utility, utility of that information is more limited. So we were able to work with them on, on using, um, using data which would provide an answer very quickly, like within 10 days, about where deforestation is occurring. So that's a very technical project, and it's uh, monitoring. It doesn't really advance any big scientific theory, but I'm very proud of that because it led to some good implementation and some real changes on the ground. And in, on the sort of more scientific theory end, um, what are some some interesting or unexpected things that looking at the data in this way has shown you or taught you? Yeah. So staying in the area of uh, deforestation and, and the tropics, um, one of the trends that is a very big trend in our in this century is uh, is urbanization, that the population growth, which is expected to reach around 9 billion or so before stabilizing in the middle of the century, um, is occurring in the developing world and in urban areas. Almost all the population growth is in urban areas, which might seem like that would take pressure off tropical forests because you have less population growth in tropical forests and deforestation. Uh, but part of the, the being in the, the southern Amazon where the deforestation is so rapid really brought us to the realization that uh, that really it's the opposite that what is uh, what is a very predominant pressure on tropical forests is not the rural farmer is not the subsistence farmer who might cut down a couple of trees to grow some crops to feed his family but it's the uh, it's the pressure for industrial-scale agriculture, large clearings, export-oriented agriculture, uh, demand for agricultural products that are very far from where the deforestation is actually happening, like, for instance, the soy that is produced in the, in the um, Brazilian Amazon being exported to Europe and exported to Asia. So these teleconnections and distant demands uh, have become a lot more pervasive and important part of globalization over the couple of decades that I've been working in this area. So being able to look at where the deforestation is occurring and being able to compare what's happening in different countries and, and bring in the 
demographic data and, and uh, you know, economic data allows us to understand these processes uh, more fully, which allows us to see where, what might be the pressures on tropical forests uh, into the future. What kinds of different challenges do you think your, sort of your students are going to face when they go out into the world trying to study earth systems and sustainable development that maybe you, you didn't have to deal with? Well, as we started with, uh, in my adolescent time, formative time, uh, the environmental issues were really clear. You could see the smokestack. You could see the dirty stream. Um, now, the I wouldn't even call them environmental issues. I'd call them the societal issues or the sustainability issues are so much more complicated. You can't see them. We can't see the CO2 in the atmosphere. Uh, we can't see the loss of species when we look out the window like you could if this Potomac River were polluted. So that's it. that just creates a whole set of challenges in terms of how do you how do you get people to understand these issues when you can you can very clearly portray a, you know some dirty air or what's making people sick. It's much more difficult to understand and portray the issues around climate change or the issues around biodiversity. Uh, so that's one big challenge that this generation has. And it's also a lot more difficult to figure out what the, the solutions are because these issues are more global in scope. They're more, um, they have ramifications throughout the whole global economy. Uh, they're so interlinked with you know, food production and so many issues that society cares a lot about, but it's it's so difficult to understand and portray all of those connections. So there's, there's a big challenge there. Uh, so you, you received the, um, the very prestigious MacArthur Fellowship in 2007, uh, and the idea behind it is to free up these very creative individuals to take on whatever problems they want to, no strings attached. So uh, what are some ways that you ended up using the fellowship and if the fellowship ended up freeing you to work yeah. on things? Well, it was really an honor to get that phone call, a surprise. <laughs> um, what I've done with that support is create a, uh, a small foundation <laughs> and use that money to support um, scientists in the developing world who, who a little bit of support would enable them to work on some sustainability issues in their country. So the focus really is in India because, yeah, because that's really where where my heart is and the needs are are really large to think about these issues. And there's so much creativity and so much talent, and uh, and what we want to do at the foundation is uh, just enable a few people to be able to uh, to pursue the sustainability issues in a way they might not be able to without a little bit of support. How did you balance a very demanding academic career with your life with them? Uh, it's really hard, <laughs> I won't lie. <laughs> it's exhausting. Uh, for many, many years I worked part-time when I was at the National Research Council and then when I went to the University of Maryland and was uh, on the research faculty. And I was, I just worked part-time. I picked up my kids at school, though they'll say I was late a lot of the time. 
But, uh, but that was just my priority. I never thought twice about it. I never even, it never even dawned on me not to make, uh, to make that the priority at that stage in my life. Fortunately, it worked out um, that I was able to continue doing the research and spend time raising them. Uh, but I just, I just, at that time in my life, that was my priority, and it wouldn't have even dawned on me to, to think otherwise, that I would try to work full-time, or that I was somehow sacrificing something. I never, I never, uh, never felt that. What advice would you give to a young person interested in a career in science? Well, I think just go for it. Just find where your passion is and and go for it and find the people that share your passion and don't worry about what anybody else thinks just do what you think is important and the right thing to do since 1863 the nation's top scientists have been honored with membership in the national academy of sciences Today, there are more than 2,500 in the NAS membership, of whom approximately 200 have won Nobel Prizes. We hope you have enjoyed this episode of Interviews and invite you to join us again for another inspiring conversation.